Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Josh Siegel. California is planning a renewable energy project at a scale and depth never attempted before in the world. The goal is to build dozens of massive floating wind turbines off California's coastal waters near one of the state's poorer, most remote areas. And it's a massively important project to both the Biden administration and the Newsom administration's climate goals. But there are several logistical, financial, and community challenges standing in the project's way. So today, Politico's Wes Venticher breaks down California's ambitious offshore wind plans, the community impact, and the roadblocks. It's Friday, August 18th. This came to be out here in California due to both the state's goal and the federal government's goal to get to net zero emissions by 2045 and 2050. A big piece of that is offshore wind because while California has lots of solar, solar goes offline at night, they have to find something else. So enter offshore wind. The state is planning on 25 gigawatts by 2045 coming from offshore wind, which is enough to power around 25 million homes, according to their calculations. And this would all be happening through these enormous turbines. These things are 1,100 feet tall, which is about twice as tall as the Washington Monument have enormous bases, bigger than a lot of cities' blocks. The blades themselves are 300 feet long, so they also produce a lot of power, and the state is depending on it to meet those goals. Wow, and you report the project is set to be located in a poor area of the state that's still scarred by gold, timber, and cannabis rushes of the past that came and went. So tell us a little about that history and why the project is being located here. Yeah, this is a part of California that in Humboldt County that a lot of people don't really know about. I mean, it was one of the centers of the gold rush. And before that, obviously, the indigenous people were living there for tens of thousands of years. The gold rush brought with it people who were taking the land, killing natives, and taking the gold, causing some pollution in those days, and not obviously doing much for the folks who had been there, which at that point was the natives. Then eventually it came to be the timber industry. There were huge redwood groves all up and down this coast, pretty close to the Oregon border. And so they were cutting down all of these old growth redwood forests, processing them in these pulp mills and sawmills that ringed Humboldt Bay. There were more than a hundred of these sawmills ringing Humboldt Bay. That industry died down. They started taking a lot of fish from the area then came cannabis, which really got going in the 60s. You know, it was all illegal at that point and was grown in these mountain hills, which sucked up a lot of water and often involved fertilizers and that kind of thing. And it's going up there now because this bay that at the same time provided a great place to take and receive everything that was needed to deal with the timber industry is the only place that's a developed port in Northern California between San Francisco and Coos Bay, Oregon, that can shelter the work and the assembly of these turbines, which would be built there and floated and stored in the port, and then eventually towed very slowly by tugboat out to 20 or 30 miles offshore. It's just geographically the best place for this. The wind off there is 
very strong, some of the strongest in the world. And so that's why there's a lot of hope that this could eventually be a big resource. And how are offshore wind developers or the developer of this project at least working to convince residents of the benefits of this project and to maybe overcome whatever level of distrust there could be? They have hired people in the community and they are regularly sending people out there just to try to hear everyone's concerns. One fisherman put it to me that you could go to a meeting every day on offshore wind up there. So they're trying to talk to people. They're trying to seriously understand the impacts and trying to work things out ahead of time. They're drawing a little bit on kind of the lessons learned from the East Coast, where a lot of the projects that are not floating but are fixed bottom struggled to get off the ground, and some of them didn't, and some of that was due to various community opposition. And so they're out there in the community talking to people about their concerns. They're hosting events. They're sponsoring things and having community dinners, all that kind of stuff, just trying to a bit of a charm offensive and trying to connect with people. And what's been the response based on people you've spoken with there? Everyone's cautious, but they're cautiously optimistic that these developers are trying to take their concerns seriously. There were a couple of bumps early on with the tribes, but the tribes now do feel engaged based on the conversations I've had, which is not with all of them, but with some. They are looking for things like community benefits, certain percentages of money going toward stuff that will help various affected people, and they're, they're getting some of that, and there's hope, and there's optimism about it. Interesting. And then, you know, outside of overcoming community distrust, what are some other major challenges for this project to actually get off the ground, and, and where is it in the process there? Yeah, the list is long. So far, the developers, RWE Energy and Vineyard Offshore, have leased the waters from BOEM, the federal agency that's responsible for that portion of it. They are beginning the federal permitting process, which is expected to take roughly six years. And then they have to figure out how to pay for this, which taking over the whole life of the project through 2045 is more than $100 billion. You know, it's much smaller to get started, but still several billions. And that needs to be lined up in terms of figuring out how the state is going to buy the power that's still being hashed out in the legislature. The technical challenges of this, you're going to have to carry this power to probably San Francisco. And that would require a whole new transmission line over land. It's like 270 miles. And those often take more than 10 years. There's some considerations of putting it in the ocean instead, but it's really tricky territory for that. And then there's getting the port built. And that's kind of the first thing that's begun, even the state process and making sure that they'll be able to assemble the turbines there. And part of that is even the blades are too big to ship in by rail or by truck. They have to be brought in by boat only is the option. So just, again, the problems of scale are part of this. Also, about 8% of U.S. drinking water system detected unsafe levels of a pair of highly toxic forever chemicals in the first half of this year. That's according to an initial set of monitoring data released on Thursday by the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA cautioned the results represent just a small fraction of the information that water utilities will be collecting over the next two and a half years and aren't necessarily nationally representative. However, the data offers the clearest official picture yet of the scale of drinking water contamination from PFAS chemicals, and it provides an early window into how many utilities may soon have to undertake expensive upgrades to remove them. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com slash power switch. 
and subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nurma Malaykel is the podcast producer. Alex Keeney and Annie Reese edited the podcast this week. Our editors are Matt Daly and Gloria Gonzalez. I'm Josh Siegel, and we'll see you back on Monday. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Chevron is working to responsibly meet rising energy demand across their U.S. operations, like at their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.